I'm thrilled today to have one of my top favorite political consultants on the line with us. So Greg, I have so many questions, we're never going to get through them all. In this election that we just got through with this weekend, there were two very distinct things that that uh, everybody's talking about that stood out. In Orleans, we had not a very active early voting cycle, number one. And then that leads to the question of why was it lower than usual and who didn't vote? And then the second thing was Sean Wilson, a Democratic candidate for governor, not making it to a runoff. And I think there were a lot of people who were surprised at that. They wouldn't have been so surprised if they were paying attention to the early voting. But um, you tell me, when you when you saw what was happening with early voting, what did that trigger for you? Well, the first thing, uh, early voting is truly a precursor of interest in the election. It right. really is. And I really look at things on a statewide basis. I'm involved in a lot of the local races here in Orleans Parish and in Jefferson and the like. But the, the, the statewide trends are really bellwether indicated. It's a theory of big numbers. You know, the more numbers you have, the more samples you have, the more credible things are. So early voting was a little bit lower than it was in, in 2019, not catastrophically lower. And a lot of people quit looking at early voting on the Saturday when in-person voting ends. But actually, you have another week of mail-in ballots that come in. Ah. Okay? And, and so the numbers at a first blush maybe aren't as low as what they really you know, appear, appear to be. But all that being said, there were a couple of things that were really interesting to me in early voting. Uh, I do what I call a voting efficiency, and I do it by area, and I do it by demographic, and political party is part of that demographic. And what that means is if a group, like let's say the Democrats, represent 40% of the voters in the state, then they should be casting 40% of the votes. If they're casting more than 40% of the votes, they're efficient. And the higher the percentage, the greater the efficiency. Lower than 40%, they're inefficient. The lower the percentage, they're inefficient. So, you know, Louisiana has really become uh, a, a deep red state, okay? I mean, both the House and the Senate were heavily Republican. Eight of the nine statewide elected officers, and I'm talking about the seven in the state plus the two U.S. senators or Republican. So when I looked at this and started tracking early voting and it tracked throughout the, the period, we see that Republicans are voting with an efficiency of like 1.3. So they're highly efficient. And African-American, the only true uh, group dedicated to voting demo democratic, they're turning out at about 8.8, 0.85, substantially below. And then in Louisiana, we have a number of other parties, independent parties. Most people don't realize, but about 27% of the voters in Louisiana fall in that category. Whoa, I had no idea. That's what I'm saying. That group, that group, was turning out at 0.5%. Tr 
tremendous variance, okay? Typically, everyone's clustered around one. Independents are usually a little bit lower, but maybe 85 or something like that, rather than 100, you know? But so now we got the Republicans who dedicated Republican voters voting at 1.3. You have African-Americans who are the most uh, reliable Democratic vote point, voting at 0.85 and independents at 0.5. So you had a tremendous disparity. And so we go into the election and uh, I certainly missed it, you know. Everybody who was tracking and polling convinced that Landry would run first in the high 30s, early 40s, you know, uh, high 30s, low, low 40s. But turnout started falling, you know, as we looking through a day and, and stuff like that. So Landry wins outright. It's absolutely incredible. It's an incredible victory for him, but uh, a real just a shot in the head to the Democratic Party. It really is, you know, on that. Um, interestingly enough, in the attorney general's race, you have a Republican and a Democrat, and you had a crowded field there too. In the secretary of state's race, you had a very crowded and uh, competitive field, but you've got a Republican and a Democrat. Here in the governor's race, the, the most important, we don't. So, you know, uh, voter apathy, uh, overall turnout was about 36, 37%. It typically is about 42%. And that doesn't sound like much of a difference, but 5% is really a big swing. And when you look at the differential turnout between African-American voters and white voters, it was very substantial. The final numbers haven't been released, but through tracking precincts, but we know the demographics and looking at early vote, and we know the demographics there, um, African-American turnout was about 26% compared to about 41% for white turnout. Wow. I can yeah. tell you, Greg, in my uh, voting uh, location, which is by the Bricolage School on Esplanade in Treme, um, and uh, I'm looking around and I, I never saw so many people in the voting gym as I saw um, on on election day. I vote on election day. I don't vote early. And um, they were mostly not, let's see, were they exclusively? They were either exclusively or mostly white. Yeah. Now, they were younger, white, and it's Treme, so you're not talking, uh, uh, you're probably not talking about a high percentage of those particular voters being um, deep red Republican. But nonetheless, I was saying, where are the black voters? I just thought, you know, I immediately, and I made a comment to the um, elector who was handling my table and um, she didn't, she said, well, they were here earlier. I mean, she, she was not really, I think, comfortable addressing the question, but it was noticeable. Yeah, and it clearly it was. Now, Orleans never goes above 10% for a Republican candidate, okay? And we saw the same thing here. Let's look at Orleans in the governor's race. Let me pull that up real quick. Okay, so in Orleans, um, Wilson got about 70% of the vote. Landry ran well, 
9.7% of the vote. So 10%, you know, you know, on that. Five. Mm -hmm. Turnout in Orleans was very low. Okay. Um, 27%. We had 71,000 votes cast and we have 263,000 voters. So only about one in four voted. And of course, we talked about the disparity between white voting patterns and black voting patterns at the state level and Orleans is majority African-American. So we see that continuation, you know, falling uh, down to the parish level. So, um, I mean, you felt it coming in a way. I mean, you, you certainly didn't, I don't think anybody really was predicting Landry was gonna make it in the first. Um, do you remember somebody saying that? Some people uh, were curious when he started tracking in in the high 40, in the, uh, excuse me, low 40s, you know, that if you had a huge turnout differential, you know, um, right. you could you could see something flip. And as we started this conversation, I was mentioning that Republicans were voting on a supercharged basis. Okay, I mean, and and he was getting seventy plus percent of the Republican voters. Okay, and mm -hmm. then. The African American voters did not become engaged, and honestly, uh, I I do significant number of surveys, significant number, and uh, talk to a lot of other survey uh, pollsters and the like. Nobody was projecting an outright win. Nobody, but yeah. Landry had the phenomenal advantage of a lot of money, and. He had money in his campaign and the third party groups supporting Landry also had a significant amount of money so they could pop, whether it be Schroeder or Wagesback or Wilson with very negative ads that weren't coming from Landry's campaign. He could be running like a Boy Scout, <laughs> you know, helping everybody and doing good things. You know, so... Um, it was a very unusual race. I've been involved in the gubernatorial, all of the gubernatorial races at a very significant level since 2003. Um, so Greg, what, what does this indicate to you going forward? I mean, you know, I, I'm by no means um, an election expert, but I do follow uh, uh, the political universe to an extent, not nearly as much as I used to when I was more directly involved in it. And um, I, I felt I, I, I felt a little feeling in my tummy that this might be coming. And um, I, by no means that I predicted, but I, I was afraid of it because I didn't sense any energy or juice. Uh, and, and I think of things in terms of kind of charisma and 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 the words energy and juice are to me um, yeah. uh, um, correct. And so I think that um, I, I just didn't feel I didn't feel the love out there, and 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 definitely wasn't feeling um, African American voters, um, you know, really responding to him. Now uh, I I'm I'm not going to say that I spend so much time in the black community, even though I'm a host on a black radio station that that I would be any kind of an expert. But 
I just, it just didn't feel, it, it just, there were just, there just wasn't feeling like anything going on there. I felt there was partially because, again, money. He, he wasn't really, uh, I, I'm going to assume he didn't have a whole lot of money. So he wasn't like all over the airwaves. He wasn't, I did see his signs on election day. They were out. I mean, whoever was doing the sign campaign did a good job. But um, the messaging wasn't really there and the television wasn't there. But I overall, um, and I think I mentioned this to you in a prior conversation, but, you know, I, I came to Louisiana in 1972 working for McCovern. Um, that was a different time. And um, we, you know, um, I, I chose to come here over going to some northeastern uh, states that I was offered as a woman, I felt a little bit of a um, anti-female uh, thing going on there. I mean, I think I was offered, I don't know, Delaware, that wasn't so bad, but you know, three, three Northeast small uh, electoral vote states. And I said, you know, Tannen's coming to New Orleans. There's a lot going on there. Let, let me see if I can't get them to send me there, even though they weren't planning to. So I had Kathy Vick and Michael Keefe and people like that call and say, hey, we got a shot. You got a Catholic vice president, Shriver, which didn't work out so well. And, um, and, and I get to come here and run the state campaign for McGovern and meet a lot of really amazing people, right? And, and, and get told by a group of... Um, African-American men who were the primary uh, folks that I was, you know, uh, greeted by, um, you got to get Aretha Castle Haley involved. Well, that was one of the blessings of my life to meet and be able to spend breakfasts at the uh, Corner Cafe um, uh, with Aretha. She downed uh, the luminous New Orleans breakfasts. And I was like sitting there thinking about the soft boiled eggs that I would normally have in New York. <laughs> where I was from and uh, saying, oh, I'm definitely in a different place. Uh, and, and a meeting that I had with um, Lindy Boggs in her office with poor boys on butcher paper and uh, bottles of hot sauce, again, uh, and reinforced that I'm in a different place. It was a democratic state. That was 1972. And then I think, I don't remember what year it was, but it was 73, four, five, somewhere in there. Um, the uh, folks managed to get right-to-work laws passed, which, to my mind, and tell me I'm wrong, had a negative impact on the union uh, movement and on, therefore, the labor vote, which was an important part of the Democratic constituency other than the um, African-American vote. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I witnessed that turnover from from blue to purple there wasn't a whole lot of purple to red and and uh and let's not belittle the reality of racism i mean it just is a factor that's all there is to it and um i but i i, I still was you know it uh, honestly it just it's, it's, it depresses me and then there's a factor that i don't think the the dixiecrats so-called or the yellow dog democrats either one of them um, really uh, represented what I, as a Northerner, think of as democratic politics. It's much more complicated. I mean, you know, Bill Clinton comes along and puts through NAFTA, 
you know, which sends a lot of jobs offshore, which, I mean, there's, you know, it's more than, it's not just because of NAFTA, uh, it's global economic um, realities. And um, and and uh, puts uh, constrictions on welfare, and I'm saying, well, damn, what what party is he in? Somebody remind me. And um, I just felt like the Democrats lost their compass for who they w- were and and who they're supposed to be representing. And I don't have the feeling that working people anymore felt that Democrats really represented them. Tell me, I'm wrong. I think you're wrong. Okay. Uh, okay. If uh, you want to share your screen, I can tell you precisely when the, the switch happened and show it to you graphically, you know, on that. In 2003, when Kathleen Blanco was governor, and we look at the opportunity for a parish to vote Republican or Democratic in one of the statewide races or the two Senate races, okay? Mm-hmm. Louisiana was solely Democratic, okay, where uh, the number of people voting Republican, the, the number of parishes where that were carried by Republican um, out of the non-possible opportunities, there were only three parishes, Bossier, Livingston, and St. Tammany, where they got four out of nine, okay? And for the most part, heavily Democratic. That's 2003. David Vitter gets elected in 2004 and starts the Louisiana Committee for a Republican Majority. Then you see a tremendous transition in the 2007 cycle, where now just about all of the parishes are voting, you know, all right. But so David Vitter in 2004 begins as he's elected to the Senate and uh, starts this Louisiana Committee for a Republican Majority and starts working at the legislative level and it has implications for um, the national levels. By 2011, by 2011, the state solid red. The transition really occurred from D to R between 2003 and 2011. Really, that late? Hmm. Yeah, and I'll send this. I'll send this to you so you but that, can. But that's the culmination oh, of the yeah. process, right? Well, it's culmination, but yeah, I mean, as a practical matter, um, I mean, the unions are very significant uh, Demetri- Democrat contributors and uh, significantly weight to that that spectrum, and yes, right to work kind of undercuts the human the union clout there's no question but there are a lot more things than that is all i'm saying there's other things now one of the other things that um i've observed more recently in more recent elections and again tell me i'm wrong is that some of the really strong uh african-american political organizations that emerged and this Emerge may not be the right word because again, I come here in 72 after civil rights um, and the the right to vote. And so I may be uh, wrong in in this, but it it seemed like they were very strong, coup, bold, soul. And and then 
in the recent years, uh, let me say post-Katrina, not knowing what I'm talking about on, on the, the time frame, you just don't see those clubs as operative and impactful, or at least they didn't feel as, as operative they're not, and as impactful. They're not. They're not. I agree. So what is going on with Black leadership? Well, first of all, the city's African-American majority, you know, at one time, the these organizations like Soul and Coup and Bold tipped the scales, okay? But but now <clears throat> you've got a majority African-American city and you've got a lot of black organizations and competing with each other for ballot space in one thing or another. Ballot space meaning ballot funds, you know, on that. So, you know, um, it's just a different environment, you, you know, completely different environment. They're not as impactful as they once were. You know, and we see that over and over again. Well, and but it's also when I say what's going on with black leadership, it's not just, you know, the PACs, the or, or the organ, they weren't called PACs back then, but the uh, the, the clubs. I, I think that um, I would have a hard time telling you who I think the really active, key, impactful Black leaders are today. Let me put it that way. I mean, obviously, Mr. Morell is very active in the uh, city council and um, counting votes, you could say, uh, long term for whatever he might run for when. <clears throat> but um, I, I, I have a hard time. Where, you know, where, where's the Jim Singletons? Where's the Sidney Bartholomews? Where's the Bob Tuckers? Where's the Mark Moriels? I don't know. Um, well, you, you, you have the mayor, you have the number of council representatives who are African-American. I mean, I think there is leadership, but there's just greater apathy across the community. You know, um, I mean, this election, you know, when you, you look back to 2019 and you had the governor pitted in a runoff against Responi, turnout increased tremendously from the primary to the runoff in Orleans Parish. It went from about 99,000 votes to 129,000 votes. And the governor got 90% of the vote. I mean, it was a real cause. They really rallied around the governor because the race was between the governor and pre former President Donald Trump. You know, I mean, that's what the race was all about. Well, he was president at that time, actually. You know, but but so there was a real cause. Wilson didn't generate any enthusiasm or excitement. I have many friends, clients who are African-American leaders in New Orleans who said, never called them, you know? Uh, uh, so he, what you're saying is he basically did not run a good campaign, fundamentally. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just a numbers guy and yeah. his numbers were not impressive. <laughs> yeah. Well, where do we go from here? I mean, uh, uh, is are the is the Democratic Party in the state of Louisiana dead in the water? Well, I'll tell you what. Just look where, at it this way. Is that message that um, the, the Rage and Cajun put out there? You know, is the economy stupid? We have no expression um, uh, as powerful as that today. Um, yeah. it, it, is this, what is this? I, I well, let me say one more thing. Generally speaking, I say a lot that the worse it gets, 
the more likely things are to change and get better in some way. So I, I, I use that as my um, faith in, in optimism and hope that things are, are going to get better. But um, I, I mean, I, I can't, I don't see it. Well, let, let's, let's put it in another perspective. There are a lot of people who think things are getting better. I mean, you've got an absolutely Republican-controlled House, Republican-controlled Senate. You have a hard-right governor. You likely, very likely, will have a Republican attorney general, who's the number two person working in, Land in Landry's office now. I mean, they're closing ranks, okay? And closing ranks with a big majority. And so, you know, you, you or we or whomever may not like what's going on, but a majority of voters in Louisiana are making this happen. And when's the last time, Gene, you've seen the trial lawyers abandon the Democratic candidate for governor? When have you seen that? You haven't. No. You know, and so that's what's going on. There's there really is a shift, but you know. Uh, so I, so let me let, let me widen the lens again uh, to the national situation. So um, I I don't want to get go down the uh, Trump rabbit hole, but um, and and I don't you know again I he's been very clever at how to um, navigate uh, again what is happening. Um, uh, in, in, in the in nationally, politically, and, and it has a lot to do again with, again, tell me I'm wrong, but I, you know, racism is definitely a factor, but yeah. also anger, anger about feeling disenfranchised, a lose, a loss of manufacturing jobs. Oh my God, I read today a story uh, in the New York Times about AI, and they were talking about um, how a white collar, retail, um, all kinds of jobs are um, are the are targeted, literally targeted by the AI tech people. So you know, it, the more jobs that disappear that are, are could have been and were entry levels for our our lower middle to uh, to uh, middle uh, class people are are going to are, have been and will further evaporate. So, I mean, it's. Uh, again, I represent, I'm not a um, solid forever Democrat liberal. I've, I've voted in many different ways. People can't imagine this about me, but it's true. And, um, and I don't share any complete uh, platform of any one party. Um, I, I have views that depart from all of them, but I, I just, I can't see how this is, is a healthy trend in America. All right, well, let me point counterpoint. Every advance in technology has made significant changes from practices of the past. When agriculture became mechanized, when we had the Industrial Revolution, you know, I mean, people transition. You know, you have nearly full employment in the country today, and we're more automated and mechanized than we've ever been, you know? Yeah. Um, there's an opportunity here with AI to uh, become more productive, more efficient. That doesn't mean fewer people doing less. It means more people doing more. 
That's how I see it. That's what they told me when I was in uh, the Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations, that automation uh, was not going to kill jobs. It was going to create jobs. And, and to some extent, that is true. I understand exactly what you're saying. But ultimately, one of the goals of capitalism is to reduce labor costs. Of course. It's not getting away from it. So what are we putting as much effort into thinking about what people are going to do with their lives and for a living as innovation who knows i mean we don't know yet so you're more of an optimist than i am i am but i mean we'll figure it out you know so anyway well i also think that we're we're not doing a very good job of messaging um and and uh, when when i say we I am talking about, I suppose, a more liberal strand of the political fabric. And um, I think that's something that everybody is saying and complaining about, but nobody has figured out how to move the needle on that. Well, and I do think ultimately- Once again, it's because there's so many messengers. Anybody who has a social media account is a messenger. That's so right. it just gets lost out there. Anyway. Give me one closing line about the political um, landscape that I don't know. I think the most important thing in the political spectrum is that you have a race for the governor, all of the legislators who have races, and other statewide elections. And significant percentage, more than half of our people, aren't interested enough to go vote. That's a real problem. And so what that does is it empowers the people with an agenda, okay? And that's what we saw this time. There's no scenario where we should, with a field as qualified as we had, you know, for governor, that it should wind up outright win. I mean, governor-elect Landry didn't participate in a lot of forums because he was so strong, he didn't have to. And so, when people become apathetic and do not participate in the process, you let the advocates control. That's not good. I think that's that's your closing line, and I I think that's an important uh, um, statement. You um, Greg, I'll be back on the phone with you sooner than later, <laughs> or I should say on the Zoom to find out. Um, some new thoughts and further um, analyses of, of what we're going through. But I sure hope we can figure out how to, um, let's say, keep the balance. And uh, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I've been doing this interview with you with a uh, new Australian shepherd oh. in my hands. If you've noticed my head sort of bobbing around a little bit, it's because I, I've got this guy on a leash because if I don't have him on a leash for a minute, um, all hell could break loose. Right. And, yeah, see, uh, um, is not fully house trained yet. So uh, myself and Arthur is his name. Bid you adieu and thank you. Thank you so uh, long. Take care. I have the pleasure of having Nadja Bynum on the program today, who is a key part of making sure that uh, we do not forget the important legacy and contemporary impact of the culture of Treme, uh, one of the most important neighborhoods of the city of New Orleans. 
uh, and in the world. <laughs> so um, Nacha, first of all, is going to give us the details on the big event coming up this weekend, and then we're going to continue to talk about Treme. Okay, good morning. Yes, our eighth annual Treme Fall Festival is this coming weekend, Friday, uh, October the 20th, and Saturday, October the 21st. On Friday is our patron party. This is our fundraiser that helps us get funds to support the culture. It's going to be at the Jazz and Heritage Foundation at 1225 North Rampart from 6 to 9. We're going to have Gina Brown there. Food from uh, Chapter 4, which is Dookie Chase, the fourth uh, restaurant, as well as uh, Hyatt Regency is providing some food. We're also going to have auction items, wonderful art and jewelry and others to available for bidding on. Uh, we're gonna have um, the the music, the, fun, the, the booze <laughs> and drinks and, and a lot of fun. So we're looking forward to you all coming out to that. On Saturday is the parade that starts at 11 o'clock in the morning at the corner of Kellerick and Henriette DeLille. And it's just a one hour walking parade. We're gonna have the Zulu tramps. We're gonna have the baby dolls. Uh, we're gonna have a second line band. We're gonna have our honorees that's gonna be uh, honored this year, which is Terrace Osborne, the artist that we all know, as well as Mr. Louis Charbonnet III, who is with Charbonnet Family Services. So they'll be in the parade, and they'll also be part of the patron party celebration. Then on Saturday, as well, after the parade, or in the, starting with the same time as the parade, is our festival, which is at St. Augustine Church in the 1100 block of Henrietta DeLille in the, in the adjacent streets and we're going to have music from 11 to 7. Uh, we're going to have uh, also a little small second line in the middle of it. We're going to have crafts. We're going to have uh, food and a lot of fun. So we're asking everybody to come on out and support this effort. We are trying to support and keep the culture of Treme alive and the, and the history. The history includes St. Augustine Church that has lots of repairs that's needed that's beyond their insurance. We have to get, keep that church here. It was the first African-American church back in the day where we couldn't participate in other churches. And so that is a very historical part of our area. We're also going to be supporting the African-American Museum with some funds to help them with marketing. And we also are supporting, again, the culture, the baby dolls, the second liners, the Indians, so that they can be able to pay for their suits. They can still support the city. The city uses that those spaces and activities to promote this city, which means that this culture supports the economy of this city. So we're trying to keep the culture alive for Treme as well as for the city of New Orleans. I think that summarizes this. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a good introduction. And um, I, I'm amazed, of course, that here we are in year eight and it's always a huge accomplishment to um, uh, pull off these very uh, demanding and complicated productions year after year. So year eight is, uh, that's a major achievement. Well, I must say that the part of the success has to do with the supporters that we're getting more and more every year. We have Liberty Bank, who is our lead sponsor. We have HRI, of course, Chapter 4. We have lots of sponsors uh, that's increasing because they realize the need of it. So um, we can't help but support and appreciate what they're doing for us to help it going, keep it going. Absolutely. Now, um, the reason it's so important to keep this culture going, 
again, is because the roots of it go way back yes. to really the beginning of the city. So let's let's talk a little bit about that legacy. And I know that you have been a student of it, so to speak, and 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 worked with um, other groups to um, to explore it and to make sure that. Uh, other people who have come to the city, especially since um, uh, since the um, Katrina, we've had this influx of folks who wanted to help us and and have been helpful, but uh, are also um, coming into all our neighborhoods, and we want to make sure that they know the history of the neighborhoods. Yeah, well, you know, we do have a lot of good history here. We're right next to the French quarters, which means we are early development in this city. Again, it's like the third development next to the French Quarter, which was the city of New Orleans at one time. So yes, we have wonderful history here, but you know, again, we're trying to keep it together. Uh, we are trying to we keep it clean. Our neighborhood association, uh, you know, plant trees, and we have folks coming over here because they're hearing about Jamaica. So yeah, I would say that um, it's hard. I think most visitors, whether they actually get to all the different neighborhoods in the city of New Orleans are increasingly aware that it's not just about Bourbon Street, that we have um, variations on our culture uh, in the different neighborhoods around the city, not just Treme, but many other neighborhoods uh, close by or, or just throughout the city. And one of the things that you know, I think it's so important for us is to constantly be aware of the need to support the opportunities for cultural presentation in our different neighborhoods. So in Treme, um, there's a there's a there's a there's a feeling in, in Treme that I would have to compare to the feeling of a village. It 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 feels very uh, small and connected in the culture. People know each other, greet each other on the street. Uh, work with each other on projects and and so it's like a small town or a village yeah when we're growing we have we have to say that the Treme festival helps us see each other a lot of folks are busy so the Treme festival bring the neighbors together so they've mentioned it to us you get to see folks who live right around the corner from your house so we do have new people who are in the area and we have folks that's been here a while so there is an effort to con continue to bring the, the two groups together by, you know, the festival as well as other organizational activities. And um, the, the music of, of New Orleans, uh, it is, there's many different phases of it from the earlier uh, forms to the most recent, but they all are connected. One uh, led to the development of the other. And again, you can see that in Treme. Um, because not only is it the second line culture that's out there, but the clubs, the music that's in the clubs, that, that's been there, that's been going on, that's not a new development. Um, so the music clubs in and throughout um, Treme are also an important part of the legacy. Well, unfortunately, we don't have as many music clubs as we've had in the past. We have the candlelight is probably the predominant one in the, in the part of Treme that's between Rampart and uh, Playbond. Uh, but there's also one that's a couple that's on Basin Street right on the corner. So the, the clubs in the past that we've had just is not quite here yet. So we're trying to build on the culture and build on businesses into May uh, to meet the needs of the community. Uh, now to do the um, uh, 
New Orleans, Times New Orleans campaign that the Tourism Commission put on uh, in this this month, October, did, did that have any value for Tremaine? As far as promoting our festival, yes. They have been, been highlighting the festival to encourage folks to come out. Uh, so we are partnering with the NOTCF, uh, their, their grant provider for us, as well as the NOLA.com. So they are aware of what we're doing, and I feel like they're supportive. What do you see um, in terms of the trends in your in in, in your neighborhood in Treme, and and uh, and and how are people who live there, like yourself, um, trying to shape that future? Well, um, well, I think it's just a matter of communicating and getting people more involved. We do have this. Uh, belief that this gentrification that's going on, and there is some of that. Uh, we do have more African-Americans that's moving in here and buying property. Uh, and then we're just friendly with our neighbors as much as we can. Again, it's a continuous effort to reach out to folks, get to know them, have them part of the organizations and participate. So, you know, we have the main, the, the challenges with the um, short-term rentals, and we have new people that's coming in on a regular basis and whatever the city is gonna do with that, we just don't know that has done some changes to our uh, housing here. And uh, we're hoping that we could come to some, I guess a happy medium to both support it as well as not interrupt the, the, the togetherness of the neighborhood. I think one of the challenges of the Airbnb uh, rentals is that for many uh, families that have, for example, doubles where they use the second half of their house for Airbnbs, it's an important part of their income. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, a, again, a double-edged sword. You don't want to see so many um, Airbnbs that it really erodes the that, that character of the neighborhood that depends on the people who have roots uh, in the area and, and continue to respect uh, its legacy. On the other hand, um, it, it, it is something that's important for some families. So how do, you, how do you look at that balance? Well, I think it's important that we find a balance. I think for the homeowners who depend on that for finances, I think, you know, we should probably find a way to help them. Now, when the new big developments come in here and take over, I think that's another issue that, uh, again, it starts with the city and how it started and how they're going to resolve it now. So as far as homeowners and people in the community that's depending on this extra income, I see that that's a good way for them to do it as long as they follow the rules uh, that's involved with having a short-term rental. But we're concerned, I think I'm concerned, and I'm not, the, I'm not representing any particular group, but concerned about the big developments that come in here and developers that comes in here and buy property and take advantage of it and it's not, not here. So Again, it's out of my hand, but I am concerned about hopefully that they'll find a happy medium. There's a connection between development in Treme and the need for affordable housing. Um, is there, are there opportunities for housing growing in Treme or not? Uh, I don't know if I have the answers to that. Uh, there are more short-term rentals that are becoming available for long-term rentals, I guess, because our focus is trying to keep the culture alive and keeping the things that has to do with the history. I can't say I'm not paying attention to it. I just that I'm not aware of what's the latest. So, you know, that's just a little bit out of what I can answer right now. Well, again, my- 
there's really a, a lot that's going on that needs to be kind of studied and examined. I think we were talking about that a little bit before right. we came on the air in our interview, um, that uh, that we really don't understand exactly um, what happened. What happened? Yeah. Well, yeah. I agree with that. We were talking about it early. I think it would be an excellent study for maybe a university to take on to study what has happened in the past with the houses, the selling of the houses, who's selling the houses, why are they selling the houses? Uh, and there are those who don't want to buy a house. There are people who don't want to be a homeowner who loses their place in the neighborhood because they didn't want to own it. So until you own it, you don't control it. And so we have those who can't afford uh, to be here. They, they can't afford to maybe repair the house. So if money comes available, several thousand dollars that they may not have any other way to get. They may sell the house to, you know, to get the funds for other needs in their in their family. So there's so many different dynamics involved with what happens in the neighborhood related to gentrification. So is it gentrification or is it redevelopment or, or restructuring? So again, if you sell your house, then you sell your house. That's up to you. But you know, why are you selling your house? And again, there are those, again, that do not want to own a house. They don't want the responsibility. So I would think of a, a study to look at what has happened over the years in Treme that brings it to where it is now and what's changing. It's needed. And um, I, I do think that there is so much of a focus on it's, it's those two words, affordable housing, but there's not as much um, real uh, action to uh, address it as there is talk about it. So the idea of studying and understanding better the, um, the what's what what the interplay is between the ownership and the opportunities for housing for uh, uh, on an equity basis, you might say, for folks is is really critical. But what we don't want to lose while whatever is happening in our community is we do not want to lose the history and the culture. So whatever happens, hopefully, will be in some level that we can accept and that's positive for our community. No matter what, we want to keep the history. We want St. Augustine Church to be here, the African-American Museum to be here. We want to have uh, people recognizing, respecting, and appreciating our, our baby dolls, our second liners, our Indians, our Zulu tramps, we want that to stay up, abreast, uh, up, up front so we can, again, keep the culture of Treme alive. You know, I want to uh, uh, take a little departure in our conversation here because it just occurred to me, and I'm curious what your perspective on this. So I, I live on Esplanade Avenue itself. Uh, mm -hmm. We moved here in 1972 when there wasn't a whole lot of uh, moving into this area. Mm -hmm. um, and we were just, I, I know, I, I, I traveled all over the city. I found uptown just a little bit too stuffy. I felt like I couldn't walk out in front of my house in a t-shirt. And um, I wanted something a little bit more um, casual and, and fitting to my personality. And, and as I looked around the city, Esplanade just felt right. And we first lived at 1234 Esplanade, which I believe is at the corner of Henriette uh, DeLille, yeah. uh, which was not called uh, at that time because you organized that. But, um, and then when we wanted to have our own place, cause we were renting there, we we moved further down um, to uh, where we are now in the 2300 block. And um, it's just, uh, I, I mean, I just, 
can't think of a, a place that has more, uh, as, as you say, of both legacy culture, but it's not just legacy, it's always ongoing. We are still inventing music and culture here all the time. And that's one of the important characteristics of the city. But one of the things that has been kind of bugging me, to be honest, is, is the speeding of motorcycles and um, souped up cars on Esplanade. Um, it, it tends to happen on Sundays, sometimes during uh, second lines, sometimes not during second lines. And I don't have the sense that the, that, the, that the first district police are paying attention to it and dealing with it. So I, I feel like nothing's going to happen until somebody gets killed. And, and, and that's a terrible way for change to happen. But is that something you've noticed and that you're concerned about? And, and can you tell me anything about why there's no attempt to basically enforce a speed limit on Esplanade Avenue? Well, I really don't know that answer. I don't live on Esplanade. I'm about a block and a half, and I guess I should be happy to be away from that area, which is where major uh, traffic is. Uh, I don't know the districts. I'm trying not to be critical of the police. They're short of, of help. Uh, they have lots of high priorities as far as crime in the city. And um, and I'm not trying to take make, take up for them. I'm just saying we have challenges in every area as far as that. So uh, I think they've made an effort to stop some of the motorcycles and the speeding, especially uh, those uh, roundabout uh activities that was at St. Bernard and Henriette DeLille, so they have blocked that off. So my guess is uh, continue to fight about it and write about it, as I don't have any answers for that. Uh, but that's interesting. I, I didn't realize that there had been that improvement um, at St. Bernard and Henriette. So, so how, how was that accomplished? Well, they put these big blocks of cement in the middle of, the, uh, of that area so they can't go around in a circle. As but, they were before. but who made that happen? Your neighborhood association? I don't know if it was our neighborhood association so much. I know that we complained about it. I think everybody complained about it in the area. And the police, uh, I guess it was the police of the city, maybe our council members, King, had that happen to put it in the middle and they can't do it, use that space anymore. It's unfortunate that that's what they have to go through to get something stopped. So... Um, I'm not certain what you're facing if you have that same situation in your area, but for sure over here, they blocked it with big cement. It's just have. plain speeding. It's just plain speeding. And it's, and it's all kinds of vehicles. It's, it's, uh, it, it's not just motorcycles and it's not just uh, souped up cars, just all kinds of cars. Nobody is really dealing with a, a speed limit. I think because maybe there's a little bit less traffic sometimes, ironically, on uh, Esplanade that people view it as a way to get from here to there faster. And so there's a lot of speeding. So what's the speed limit in your area? 35 miles an hour, not including yeah. school zones, of course, which is always the, the 20 miles during school hours, but 35 miles an hour, which is actually not that slow. But um, if people kept to 35, it wouldn't be so bad. But you know, I do know now that I'm thinking about it, we do have an issue on Claiborne Avenue with the, that problem, with the speeding and the motorcycles. So perhaps they need to lower it and maybe put some bump, bump, you know, the uh, speed bumps there and that would help it so maybe that's a request and maybe someone listening to this conversation can take care of that reduce the speed and put some speed bumps 
on Claiborne and in your area to help that that problem. That's interesting. The idea of speed bumps, I kind of like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Nadja, I uh, let me get back to your festival because um, it's going to be so much fun. And um, I, I really, uh, I know how hard you all work having done some events, not as ambitious as that. I I know how much work it, go, it goes into yeah. putting these things on. Well, so, like, you we, all who we, work with you. we feel that we have to keep this festival going. It's how much work it is. We need more help, more volunteers and, and more funds to help us get it done. But we cannot just drop this. So we are going to continue this festival every year in October. We just hope not too many other festivals take our weekends, which has happened. More and more people are doing festivals here. Sorry. That's, yeah. that's, but I guess if everybody's having fun, that's fine. And October is a good month for festivals. But yes, Friday the 20th, uh, the patron party at the Jazz and Heritage from 6 to 9 with a lot of food, food music, entertainment. Uh, and Saturday, come out to the... the um, Second line, come and be a part of it. Bring your handkerchief and your umbrellas at 11 o'clock in the morning and just one hour. You can walk through it, dance through it, and come to the festival uh, at St. Augustine area in the 1100 block of Henrietta DeLeo. And we have lots more music, crafts, food, et cetera. So we appreciate everyone who will support us or is supporting us. I, I think that the weather is going to support you too because yes. I going to be perfect. Uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, uh, we're going to continue to have this beautiful weather, maybe even just a tad warmer. So that wouldn't hurt. And one more thing, I'm sorry, I need to add that on Saturday, on Sunday, rather at 10 o'clock, we have this uh, mass at St. Augustine Church. So we're hoping everyone can come out to that, support that and be a part of the mass on Sunday at 10 o'clock. I I, uh, I know folks who go there religiously every Sunday, and I'm sure they'll be there as well as uh, folks who went to the festival. Thank you so much for what you do, Nadja. I know, as I said, how much work is involved, and we really appreciate it. Um, and I hope it's a blast. And, and everybody keep in mind that this is about keeping our culture alive. Yeah, it's not just, not just me. It's my board, my husband, Adolf, Jessica, and Alonzo Knox. So I want to make sure they get credit as well. Thank you. 